Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, everybody, and Happy New Year. Welcome to your first episode of Industry Night in 2022 with me, Nikki Nellis. Well, we did make it happen. Um, well, I hope you all made it because it's been a bit cray out here and out there. Um, the Omicron explosion and very typical DC weather, 60 degrees in the morning and a full-blown blizzard in the evening, um, you know, uh, kicking off the new year right. So um, I do sincerely hope you rung it in and rung it in well with a lot of gratitude and some good intentions. And uh, like me with glass upon glass of champagne and maybe some little pops of caviar, um, as one does. Now, we do have a lot to talk about. And thankfully, Kathy Hollinger of the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington is back with me to give a real 411. The rules, what are we doing? How are we dining? What is happening in and around the DC food, wine, and hospitality industry? Um, plus, Restaurant Week is back. We're going to dive in deep to that. So, all the deets in a sec, but I really want to tell you about who's coming up later in the show. A few months ago on my other radio program, Foodie and the Beast, I had Hankaku Spirits, uh, Bruce Gerhardt and Jake Tenenbaum. They both came in and they poured these koji fermented sochus and whiskeys, all from Japanese family run distilleries. They were so interesting and very entertaining. And they really had so much more to say. And on Foodie and the Beast, you only get 12 minutes. So I said to them, you guys have got to join me on Industry Night. Um, we've got a lot to dive down deep into about all this. And they said to me, if you think we're knowledgeable, then you should talk to um, Hankaku Spirits founder, Christopher Pellegrini, and ambassador of Hankaku Spirits, Stephen Lyman. And I was like, okay, let's set it up. So later in the show, we're talking with Hankaku Spirits founder, Christopher Pellegrini, and ambassador of Hankaku Spirits, Stephen Lyman. So they'll be joining me from Japan. Um, and all you pseudo spirits aficionados out there, get ready for a real lesson from the experts. But Kath, hi there. Kathy Hollinger, Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington. Hello. Hi, Nick. Happy New Year. Same to you, my dear. Um, Kathy, let's get into it. It's I don't know how we got here. What's happening? It's a nightmare. It is. I mean, the last three weeks have been incredibly challenging. And once again, restaurants are completely upended. Mm -hmm. We've had, you know, closures, temporary closures, extended closures during the busiest time of the year for many of these restaurants, particularly a year that we thought we would be able to recoup from the year prior. So it's been tough. And then yes, during that same period, uh, the city of Washington, they rolled out their vaccination mandate mm -hmm. for restaurants, nightclubs, taverns, concert venues, um, breweries, wineries. So there's a lot going on. What is somewhat a head down time of year for the restaurants because they're so busy was less busy in the restaurant, but very, very busy in terms of questions and planning and thinking about how they get to the first week of January. Well, and I think one of the things you brought up, which, you know, 
you and I've talked about this like crazy. I mean, there's lots of stories out there. And since you and I and everybody in the industry is so aware of these stories, we just think everybody else knows, right? Like what's going on. So there's a lot of information out there, but I don't think the general public is as aware of what's happening. So one of the things that is happening, there's already staff shortages in the restaurants, but now people are also getting COVID. And because this uh, Omicron is so transmissible, it's like spreading through entire restaurants. So restaurants literally had to shut down or like, you know, bakeries, et cetera. Like I think about Tiffany McIsaac. I mean, everybody in her bakery had Omicron. So there was nobody to do the work. Well, that's, yes, that's what was, you know, the the complete crazy part of this is whether you were symptomatic, un, you know, unsymptomatic. I mean, the idea was that it was spreading wildly mm-hmm. and restaurants just did not have the human capacity to be able to stay open. So they had to close for a 10 day period. Then you had CDC guidelines. They were amended. Those were changed. I mean, everything was happening within a 72 hour window where it still was not winning for a small business owner because there was so much to sort through. Right. So now let's talk about uh, where we are now. Um, Vaccine mandates. I I mean, I'm hearing only positive things. Are you getting a lot of pushback? I mean, we're in very different positions. Yes, you know, it's interesting. So months ago, I would say that I heard loud and clear that absolutely we should be going in the direction of vaccine mandates and that restaurants were very prepared to do what they needed to do. Interestingly, I think many feel that it was a little too late to impose this mandate. This should have happened three months ago. Mm -hmm. The biggest concern is the how in validating and enforcing. And a great example is, you know, for a restaurant or an eatery, if you do not have a host stand or a host, who is that person who is responsible to become the vaccine police? Mm -hmm. And those are very real struggles. I, I think about a lot of the places we go to, we walk in, there's not necessarily a host stand. So who is that first person in contact with the customer to have to require that? I've heard a little bit of mixed, you know, mixed reviews from diners coming in and not appreciating the mandate or not fully being aware, not because they don't believe one way or another, but they did not feel prepared because of the consumer education that didn't take place. Now, we this is all beginning January 15th. And the idea was to allow for a little bit of time to get things together, you know, but as we approach that date, there is hesitation. And the idea is that beginning the 15th, you have to show validation of one dose. And then by the 15th of February, you have to show that you have two doses. And at that point, you know, the enforcement begins, ABRA will weigh in, there are penalties, fines, what that looks like, we're still completely unclear, but the best thing is for our restaurants to be prepared that January 15th, they will have to begin enforcing this vaccination only guests dining in their restaurants. Well, and I will tell you, um, because I have been going to restaurants the last two weeks. I mean, I may be one of the few, but we've been out and yes. every place I've been to, I mean, yesterday I went to Zatina and I got three calls reminding me 
you must come with your vaccination. Everybody in your party must come with your vaccination uh, information. I was like, I hear you. I gotcha. I appreciated it because I'm, and listen, that's a huge restaurant group. It's think food group. They have the staff obviously to Mm -hmm. handle that. Um, I think it's going to be a little bumpy, but eventually it'll be smooth sailing. I mean, it, you know, uh, yeah. you, hear the, you more than anybody else will hear the bumps, but then yeah. eventually people will get it. It'll be like anything else. You got to show an ID to drink, like whatever, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. I agree with you. I do think that, you know, what the fatigue that is setting in is on the owner and operator mm-hmm. who feel that they have yet another thing to police when none of this policing was a part of their job two years ago. And I hear that loud and clear. Um, It is another bump in the road. We are going to get through it. And, you know, hopefully this is the bridge to the spring, which will be a better time. I could not uh, agree with you more on that one. Well, so let's talk about um, restaurant week and how you're executing that this year, because a lot of restaurants in the last week have been like, we're taking a break. We're shutting it down. Like we need, they're burnt. They are burnt to the crisps of edges, like everywhere. So you still decided to launch restaurant week. And what does that look like now this year? Cause you guys have gotten really creative with it, given what's been going on with COVID. Yes. You know, Nick, we, we felt we had to do it. We knew we were not sure at the time that we launched what January would look like. Interestingly, it looks a lot crazier than what we even anticipated. But what I will say is that, again, it's so necessary. I mean, they they have closed for a couple of weeks, some of these restaurants. So they're coming back and they're hoping for that diner loyalty to come back in their restaurants. Or like you said, with our creative offerings, picking up, getting delivery, getting pairings to go, restaurant week at home, restaurant week in your igloo, restaurant week inside. I mean, it really is about meeting the diner where they are, but interestingly, meeting the restaurant where they may be. They may not be able to provide all offerings, but they can provide one offering. So we're trying to create a lot of flexibility, both for the restaurant and for the diner to meet everyone where they may be comfortable. And we're seeing an uptick in participants signing up. Um, We have about 160 restaurants that are participating. We usually are at the 200 mark, but it's terrific. And I think that, you know, this was the week everyone paid attention coming off of the holidays. So there's going to be a lot for diners to choose from. And I think it is such an important promotion to get people out to support these small businesses. I, I totally and completely agree with you. And I, the intention is there. I do think most of the DC dining, you know, people who love the dining community and really get it want to support the restaurants because they, they want to go out. People want to go out and they want to go out and eat. They want some form of normal life for themselves. Do you know what I mean? And whether it's picking it up and bringing it home or going out, they're looking for it. And honestly, everybody is sick of cooking. I'm sick of cooking. Like I, I don't have a creative bone left in my head with the rest. Every recipe I read, I'm like, I've made that. Haven't I made that? I feel like I've made that already. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. So where can everybody find out about who's participating in restaurant week and uh, what kind of offerings they're doing? Where can they find it? I mean, people can visit 
rwdmv.com. They can see a listing of all the restaurants who are participating, what those offerings look like, what the price points are. And I would encourage that people go back and visit every couple days to see new offerings that are presented on the site. We're excited for it. This is the time. Hopefully the snow will come and go. We have another batch coming in, but hopefully January 15th will be um, a great success for people to get out. Yes, you will need to be vaccinated if you're dining in DC, but the good news is that we're creating these safer communities for people to feel that they can be out and about and live a little bit more of a social interactive life. I applaud it. I'm here for it. And I'm while I appreciate how hard it is on the restaurants to institute this new mandate with the vaccines, it's already hard enough with the masks, I, I, we need it. And I, I actually have seen a couple of restaurants that are already like, yeah, we also want your booster. I mean, I, you know, there are some who are ahead of the game. Yes. Um, I applaud all efforts. So um, you have a, a, a strong supporter in me for uh, doing it, even though I know it's hard for them. Uh, Kath, I want to thank you so much. And I do want to remind people when it comes to restaurant week that many restaurants shoot, go, go along with it, either do it for the month of January or an extra week or something like that. So stay, pay attention if you don't go to the places that you, if you can't get to everywhere is my point, because some people really keep those promotions on longer. Um, Great point. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me. It's always good thank you, Nick. All right. And uh, we'll stay in touch and talk soon. Great. Kathy Hollinger, everybody. Of course, you can go to the thelistareyouonit.com to find out more about Restaurant Week and everything that's happening as far as mandates, uh, as far as dining around the D.C. metro area. Now, as I said in the top of the show, it is not every day uh, that you get to say you're talking to a Sochu expert like Christopher Pellegrini or a leading expert on Japanese spirits like Stephen Lyman. But um, I'm saying it because I'm going to get a morning ed class with these two from Hankaku Spirits, and they are joining me from Japan. Hi, gentlemen. How are you today? Very good. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Um, so I'm so excited to have you both on. So let's kind of start from the beginning. Uh, you're two Americans. You're living in Japan. Um, and I'd love to know how you got there, why you're living there, and uh, why Sochu. Christopher, let's start with you. So I'm from a beer brewing background. I was a teenage brewer for Otter Creek, which is in Middlebury, Vermont. I was brewing for them in the 90s. Mm -hmm. I was too young to drink what I was making. And long story short, I ended up in Japan several years later. And the whatever the gene is in my body that made me intensely fascinated by batch brewed and batch distilled drinks kicked into overdrive when I found myself in Japan in 2002. And I ran headlong into shochu and Awamori Japan's indigenous spirits. And I just needed to know more. So I spent the next several years visiting distilleries, annoying people with my nerdy questions, and really just trying to learn more about a spirit that outsells sake in Japan and yet is unknown internationally. So mm-hmm. I guess that's that's the very quick summary of how I got Talk to about Japan. kind of right place, right time, right? Because if you think about um, the changes here in the States as far as distilling and interest in spirits, uh, both 
domestic and international. I mean, there was a huge explosion, like starting in the between 2002 and 2006. And then with the crash in 2008, like people went into their cellars and started distilling or brewing or, you know, like there was a explosion brewing, so to speak, about then. You're absolutely right, Nikki. I mean, back in the early aughts, the the Siebel Institute, which is in Chicago, I think that's their home base, mm -hmm. had a what was this new craft distilling course that they had started. So there was clearly a huge swell of interest in distillation in the United States. And so I guess, yes, if you want to call it good timing, the fact that Stephen and Stephen's and my genesis of becoming show to an Awamori nerds in Japan has found us reaching back into, um, you know, the, the foundation of that swell of interest at this time. I, I think it probably is good timing. I think we are, we are in Fortunate. the United States market with, with uh, a very good portfolio, a very interesting portfolio at the right time. Well, so um, I want to dive into that portfolio, portfolio, excuse me, but Stephen, let's talk about you. Uh, how'd you meet Christopher? How'd this all get started? Sure. Uh, well, I, I discovered Shochu and Awamori a little bit later than Christopher. I was living in New York City and I wandered into a Japanese izakaya or Japanese gastropub late one Tuesday night. You know what an uh, izakaya is. I, I didn't at the time. It, it's something I now love. It's one of my favorite ways of dining. But back in 2007 in New York, I had a vague sense of that there were restaurants beyond sushi and ramen when it came to Japanese food. And uh, but my friends and I stumbled in, we sat down at the table. And the first thing the waitress said was, you know, well, welcome. And uh, it's it's Tuesday. So it's half price on a bottle of shochu. And I said, what shochu? And she said, it's like Japanese vodka, which is a pretty terrible way of describing <laughs> <laughs> Christopher, oh no don't say that but go ahead <laughs> yeah um but I looked at the menu and I said all right we're going to get a, a full bottle of shochu for 20 dollars that seems like a reasonable deal uh and we ordered it and really enjoyed it and that just began my journey and my exploration <laughs> I didn't have Christopher's access to distilleries and all that sort of thing so I basically was relying on the internet and there was basically nothing in English at that time so I started a blog and that blog basically grew into opportunities to meet shochu makers when they came to the States to do sales, uh, interactions with the Japanese government, eventually being named a shochu uh, ambassador uh, by the Japanese cabinet office, which Christopher is as well. Mm -hmm. And just doing everything I can to uh, evangelize for these drinks uh, because they really are just these beautiful craft spirits that are virtually unknown. Uh, and I ended up uh, meeting Christopher through Twitter as many modern relationships start these days. Uh, but then uh, he and I became fast friends. We realized we're essentially brothers from another mother. Mm -hmm. We have lots of common interests and similar backgrounds, although I've never brewed beer. Um, I, he and I share a love of baseball and movies and, and other, other things that we really enjoy beyond uh, shochu and awamori. And then I ended up moving to Japan in 2018. So my move here is much more recent, but I moved down to Kyushu, which is where 90% or more of shochu is made. So okay. I have very easy access to distilleries at this point. They're they're basically a a quick quick train or train or bicycle ride or car drive away. So it's pretty pretty convenient. Well, so let's for the uninitiated. Um, Sochu, you know, there's there's quite an interest in Sochu here in the states um, and in the DC market especially. Um, so, but for those who don't know what it is, can you explain? what Sochu is and Aomari and sort of the differences in the spirit so that people understand? 
I'll take either of you. Sure. Uh, so shochu is a uh, single pot distilled spirit. And unlike the Irish single pot definition, this means it goes through the pot still one time. Mm -hmm. So you're not using a column still. You're not distilling more than once as you would for most other spirits traditions. You take that fermentation, you distill it once, and that's what you get. And you cannot add anything to it after distillation other than water and time. So you can dilute to whatever you want to bottle at and you can age it, but you're not allowed to add any additives, okay. uh, which is, is pretty different from a lot of spirits traditions. And as a result, you have to make a really beautiful fermentation to get a beautiful spirit on one pass through the still. Okay. And so these, these, we call them master brewer distillers because they're masters at brewing and distilling. In order to make a beautiful shochu, you need to be but able to what, do both. So when, but what are they brewing first? Sure. So I actually started with the end of the process right. because that's the easiest part to understand. Okay. Uh, the the shochu has to be made using koji as a, as a sacrification agent. So mm -hmm. koji is a mold. It's the national mold of Japan. Mm -hmm. And koji grows on almost anything as long as it's got a hot, humid environment to grow on. Mm -hmm. uh, there, are, there's a chef in Cleveland, Ohio, that actually has koji fermented uh, scallops, and he makes fast charcuterie and all sorts of things with meat uh, using koji. But in shochu production, it's using typically grains uh, or root vegetables. Uh, okay. So typically, you are using rice, barley, sweet potato. Those are the three main styles. And this fungus uh, grows on top of it, the koji. Yeah, so the koji mold is, is propagated onto steamed rice or barley, typically, sometimes other substrates, but those are the most common for koji propagation. It's how sake is made. Is it sort of like, um, I, I can't pronounce it correctly, but you know that corn fungus, wheatloche? Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a fungus that grows on top of corn that is sort of a delicacy in Mexico. Is it similar okay. to that? Great question. Do not know. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm un unfamiliar now, with that. You're saying that it's propagated, so people pick it up and put so it the, on other things. So there are, there are actually koji manufacturers in Japan. It's, oh, it's, okay. the, it's the national mold of Japan. It's used to make sake, soy sauce, mirin, miso. There mm. really wouldn't be a Japanese culinary tradition as we know it without koji. Okay. So koji is used to make all of these different uh, fermented uh, foods and, and food ingredients and alcohols, alcoholic beverages. Mm -hmm. So sake is made with koji. Shochu is made with koji. Awamori is made with koji. Okay. Uh, and then... And what, so for people who don't understand, what is the difference between a sake, a sochu, an awamori? What, what's the difference? How are we figuring out the complexity differences? Sure. Christopher, why don't you take that one? Maybe? Yeah, sure. Um, so sake is brewed. Sake is closer to being a beer or, you know, it's in the same family as wine. It's not a spirit. And this is a word that gets misused all the time. Spirits are distilled, right? It's called a spirit because you're, you're evaporating the alcohol out of the, the brewed mixture, the mm -hmm. fermentation, and that vapor is called the spirit, right? That's where that comes from. Mm -hmm. And so spirits like gin, tequila, mezcal, whiskey, and a whole bunch of other beautiful drinks include shochu and awamori. And so these are that's the main, that's a huge difference between sake and shochu and awamori. Okay. Sake is a brewed drink, shochu and awamori are brewed and then distilled. Distilled, got it. And so shochu is uh, usually from grains, but they both use koji fermented, the fer 
They use koji. They're both koji fermented. And then what is mm -hmm. awamori? Awamori is only made with rice. It's only shochu's likely older cousin. It's a slightly older tradition than, than shochu, maybe by decades. Not entirely sure how much older it is, but mm -hmm. it's only made from rice. And, and one specific type of koji, this is going down another rabbit hole. There are okay. various strains of koji. They do different things in the fermentation. I don't know if we need to get that deep right now. Mm -hmm. But uh, it has a lot of rules. Awamori is more rule, is more bound. The boundaries are very fixed. They don't um, have a lot of flexibility. Well, actually, that brings up a good question. Like similar to like Italy, you know how everything is like DOCG, like, you know, you, you have to sure. regionally and do things in a certain Absolutely. way from pizza to- um, Same thing. So it's the same, thing, same thing there with, so exactly. each has certain accreditations on how it has There to are four major ones right now. Uh, okay. One of them controls almost all awamori production. It's called the, it's called Ryukyu Awamori. It is protected internationally by the WTO, just like champagne is, or like camembert cheese is. Sure. And then there is a sweet potato shochu style called Satsuma Shochu, which has its own set of strictures and reg regulations and can't do this and can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a rice shochu style made to the north of the sweet potato that is called Kuma Shochu which is only made in one small city, really, up in this basin, up in the mountains. It's a very difficult area to access and they make beautiful rice shochu. It's called kuma shochu. Mm -hmm. And the last one is a, an old school barley style called iki shochu made on this tiny little island called Iki Island. There's only seven distilleries left there that are making it, but it is also protected internationally by the WTO as iki shochu. Um well, this, I mean, it's so fascinating to me. So let's move a little bit forward because, I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole about how it's made. Yeah, and the there are many. Flavors. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. But so now you have all these varietals, you have um, all these sounds like very small, interesting distilleries all over Japan. Um, and as uh, Stephen said earlier, like people in the States maybe know Sochu. I don't think everybody knows about Aomari. Um, And now we have this huge... Uh, uh, spirits market here with local spirits being so important. And I mean, I just, I mean, the East Coast alone, the, you know, what's available per market is insane. So you have these spirits mm. that are not as well known here in the States. How do you go about taking your passion for these spirits and educating the American palate? I'll take either of you, Stephen or who feels best to answer this question? I, well, yeah, I guess I've, I've spent, well, I spent uh, more than a decade trying to promote shochu and awamori in the New York City market, particularly, and mm -hmm. did a lot of work with the Japanese government, as I mentioned, and with some of the shochu makers. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest challenges has really been consumer education, but it's also trade education, because over and over again, I used to host these uh, uh, weekly roving happy hours around New York City that I called Show Tuesday. So uh, every Tuesday evening, we'd have uh, Shochu at a different bar, and I'd be the guest bartender. And almost invariably, when there was a new customer that I'd never met before, and I'd say, have you ever had Shochu before? They said, oh, yeah, I had it at a Korean barbecue restaurant. That's Korean like, soju. Right. You're like, which no, is... totally different drink. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. We, we talked about all of the rules around, the guardrails around Shochu production. There's basically no guardrails around soju production in Korea. 
it's it's the wild wild west okay. and obviously they're going to make it as cheaply uh and efficiently as possible right, well, let's not to... get a gauntlet thrown here about what they're doing in Japan, <laughs> what they're doing in Japan. um right so okay I, I appreciate that and I think also and I, I'm sure I'm saying something that you're way ahead of me on but there is a misconception that uh, sake or sochu or amari only needs to be served in a Japanese restaurant you know, I, I think that's probably what's missing from uh, bar menus here in the um, in the states is that there is this sort of you know narrow mindedness on what belongs where and when where and when you should be drinking things, right? Especially if you're not aware of it, you know. Like, um, so it's a good point. Do you know what I mean? Like, you could conceivably have uh, sochu at a Korean restaurant if they had a large menu that carried spirits from anywhere right that's that's absolutely correct and that's where i started to see even before honkaku spirits was launched i began to see shochu popping up on bars in fine dining restaurants or in chinese restaurants or other other cuisines not just in japanese restaurants and that was that was uh, a good sign to me that that things were starting to move in the right direction uh, but I think there's still a tremendous amount of education. Uh, but one thing that we also have become aware of, I think in 2018, I was at Bar Convent Brooklyn helping out some of the shochu makers uh, at their tables. And I couldn't get the people walking past to even stop and try the drink. Would you like to try some shochu? No, that's okay. I'll come back later or, you know, no thanks. Very, very few people were interested in it. We had the Honkaku Spirits booth at Bar Convent Brooklyn 2021. And people were two or three deep at our booth. People were seeking it out. Hmm. Th these are these are bartenders, restaurant managers, uh, buyers for liquor stores, and they were very, very interested in what's going on with shochu. So I think the awareness has started in the trade, mm -hmm. and I think the next the next step will be uh, consumer awareness. Well, I, it is amazing. That is true. I mean, you know, your uh, your neighborhood bartender is your best uh, advocate for a spirit. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Or a beer or, or wine. Absolutely. Um, so now there's always been a great interest, not always, but, you know, Japanese whiskey is sort of, you know, held up on a huge pedestal here in the States, not just at Japanese restaurants, but, you know, finer dining restaurants as well. And I know you guys dabble in that too. How do you go about finding the distilleries that you want to represent at Hankaku? Christopher? Yeah, these have been relationships that have been in the works for decades, really. Stephen and I have been traveling to Kyushu Island, where he lives now and where I travel frequently. And we just have been trying to learn and trying to help advocate and doing anything we can to teach the rest of the world about these fascinating drinks. And it's always been slow going, but amongst that plodding pace, a lot of really good relationships were born. And so Stephen and I have helped, I mean, Stephen goes every fall to help at a particular distillery in Kagoshima to lend a hand. They're always short staffed. It's, it's tiny family run operations. Mm -hmm. And we've both done the same elsewhere on the island and to the point where we, we stay at their homes and we, you know, we have, we, we have meals together. We, we sometimes occasionally we spend the holidays together. You know, it, it's turned into really good friendships. And Stephen and I are very clear about what we like and what we don't like. And we have, we probably, if you look at the bottles behind him, be, because we can see that right now, 
right. um, probably half, at least half of those I have at home be, you know, on my, my home bar too. We, mm -hmm. we really know what we like and we want to share that with people. Now, fortunately, we tend to have close relationships with the people who make these drinks. Mm -hmm. um, so how did we choose what we, what we have in the U.S. right now? It's basically stuff that Stephen and I like to drink at home. We know it's good and we mm -hmm. want to share it with other people. And we were able to go from a friendship relationship to a business relationship based purely on trust. Basically just, well, we know you guys, we know you're both academics and you seem to want to be business people now, which is a little strange, but right. uh, we're going we're gonna to take the journey with you. And that was a, you know, multiple years in the making, basically. How well, we no, am I right that you guys launched Hankanku in March, 2020? That's correct. I mean, amazing great timing. time. Great timing on that yeah. one. <laughs> But everybody is. Oh, yes, it was exciting. Maybe it was good timing. Maybe it was. And, you know, I, I would never discount the types of relationships that we were able to develop from zero during the pandemic purely over Zoom. Mm -hmm. We have had a lot of fortuitous bounces in that sense, just in terms of the fact that people were at home and Zoom wasn't yet completely annoying. And right. people would be happy to get on the phone and talk about showed you and how it's amazing and and then we could get samples to people and we could taste them through a whole line of things and mm -hmm. it was something that never could have happened in a different context so there is certainly a significant silver lining to everything that was happening at the time amazing and now so let's talk about some of the products that are here in the states uh that people have access to like if um you were to say okay nikki you're gonna you know, go to the store. Here's where I, if I was to get like a Sochu Aramari education, what would be the four that you would advise me to buy and what progression would I try them in or how would I serve them? Like walk me through it. Stephen? Okay. Uh, four. Okay. I would probably. Well, how about this? How about yep. you give me one of each and then Christopher, give me one of each. So everybody can give me okay. one of each. Okay. Can't give me well, the same. Okay. You guys got to mix yeah. it up. No problem. Sure. I, I would probably recommend you start with uh, Mugi Hoka because mm -hmm. I think that's the easiest for Americans to understand because it's made from barley. It's a 100% barley shochu. Mm -hmm. And it's actually made with uh, roasted barley in the mash bill. So it has coffee and dark chocolate notes, mm. which makes it a really, really interesting spirit that you've got to, with no additives, they're able to get those really rich coffee and chocolate uh, flavors, along with that, the barley uh, undertones, which is going to remind it. people of beer and whiskey. So would you just serve it over, the, like, on the rocks, um, straight, straight up? Is it something you would you make, like, a Manhattan with? Or, you know, how how do you advise that? Sure. Mugi Hook is 25% alcohol, so it's only 50 proof. It's quite low proof relative to most spirits. I actually enjoy it in coffee. I will, I'll do... Uh, coffee and soda with uh, a shot of Mugi Hoka is my favorite way to drink that uh, shochu actually. And, uh, but uh, some people enjoy it on the rocks. Uh, a style in Japan is oyuwari, which means mixed with hot water, usually doing a 50-50 hot like water a, blend. Like a, like a hot toddy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Almost like that, except you would just pour about half your cup with hot water, about mm -hmm. which you would uh, use to make, to brew tea. You wouldn't want right. to go up as hot as coffee. And then, then you just pour the shochu on top and the, the, the convection releases the aromas because of that single pot distillation, you get beautiful aromas 
when oh. you serve it that way. That's a great, great way to drink it in the wintertime. Okay, very cool. All right, and now the awamori. We don't yet have any awamori in the portfolio. Okay. okay. We, we still, we still we love awamori. Okay, so Christopher, how about you? Which one would you recommend? Um, I, there's, um, if we're talking about, as Stephen was, somebody who's approaching the category basically from a blank slate, mm -hmm. then I might also recommend going for um, Celephant. Celephant is a kokuto sugar shochu, which is, and when I say kokuto, it's this style of super dark, almost unrefined cake. It's, it's, it's sold in chunks, basically sugar, that is super mineral rich. Mm. It's um, considered to be something of a superfood in the Southern Islands where it's produced and it can be used to make shochu just in one specific area. It's limited by the Japanese government, the Amami Islands, which is this beautiful subtropical necklace of islands stretching between Kagoshima proper and Okinawa prefecture. And they make this really interesting, very grassy, but very dark sugar flavors like molasses and treacle and caramel and some tropical notes as well. And Celephant is a really nice introduction to that style. It clocks in at 30% uh, ABV, so a little bit higher than the Mugi Hoka that Stephen had mentioned before, but plays really well on the rocks, plays really nice with soda, soda water or, or sparkling water, I should say. And I think is a great way, especially if you have an appreciation for rum to get your head around one particular corner of the very, very diverse shochu world. Yeah, I mean, that's what it was making me think of when I was thinking of like sugar as I was thinking of sort of rum and those kind of caramelized flavors that you can get from a yeah. filled rum. Um, one, what about the people who, let's hear a little bit about their stories. I mean, who is the family that created that particular one? Uh, well, this is the one of, one of many amazing families in the Amami Islands making shochu, the Nishihira family, which makes elephant and another one of our products called Kana. They have been doing it for generations. And Celephant is actually the nickname of the current president and Toji, as Stephen said before, the master brewer distiller. Her name is Serena Nishihira. Hmm. And she, when she was, when she was a child, she, her nickname was Celephant. Um, her name is Serena or Serena, and she loved elephants, so they rammed them together, and she okay. became Celephant. And so the, the brand is named after her, and she's the youngest Toji in the industry. She's also a professional musician, so if you check our website and you go to her Toji profile, you'll see a Spotify link to her album oh, on that. Spotify. She, yeah, she's very, very talented. She's very innovative. And she's progressive and she's trying new ways to bring shochu outside of Japan. So she's been a fantastic ally and her family's been in the business for several generations now. So it's a, it's a very typical story from this part of the country. Well, actually you brought up my next question really, which was, does Japan want the world to know about all these spirits that are sincerely Japanese, right? That, you know, is all about the Japanese experience. Do they want it over here in the States? Do they want 
that kind of education so that people know about it. Like when Steven said earlier about Izakiah, and I was like, I know what an Izakiah is. I mean, you're right. 15 years ago, I did not know what an Izakiah is. But as the uh, landscape changes and people become a more educated consumer, is Japan, is Japan, the government on a whole, and these little family distilleries, are they on board with it? I would say yes. Certainly the government has been putting uh, quite a bit of resources behind it, especially in the more recent years. There have been mm -hmm. an, a number of different government agencies have been pushing it, uh, probably not to the degree that they need to, but mm -hmm. uh, every little bit helps. And then I the makers- use, I always use Rosé from Provence as an example of when government puts money behind a product, what happens? Um, Rosé, you didn't find on a single table in this country years ago. And now oh. there's, I, I've got a case of it in my fridge. I mean, the, uh, the, what's it called? The government of Provence put so much money behind it in like 2002 or 2003. I was at a tasting of it. And um, look at the success. It's amazing. It right? completely changed the dialogue about that product. You're right. Right. It so government, does. marketing, government, getting into it is so, so important. Yep, absolutely. I, I think with the makers themselves, they obviously realize the need because <laughs> they are struggling. Japan is uh, an aging country right? with decreasing population and younger people don't have the same drinking habits as the older generations. So that while shochu still outsells sake domestically, it is declining year over year in, in sales. And and the other thing is shochu, actually, there's more shochu made in Japan than tequila in Mexico. Wow. But more than 99% of it stays in Japan. Less than 1% is exported. We're about two thirds of tequila is exported. Right. But if you, I mean, not to go down a rabbit hole, but I mean, Mexico is right below the States. Lots of people from the States travel to Mexico. It's not as easy for Americans to get to Japan. Do you know what I sure, mean? Sure. So. It, mm -hmm. which is why that culture is more assimilated into, uh, you know, American for Americans than, you know, what's happening in Japan, although they're doing a good job. Right. So, um, and you guys are doing an amazing job because it's just the spirits that you are, are bringing to the States are terrific. And there's such amazing stories. So can you, we have to sort of wrap up. Can you uh, tell me where we can, find spirits, how we can get more educated, how we can follow you guys so that we stay up to date on everything. Sure. As far as education, uh, Christopher and I have both published books on the subject. I think uh, Christopher's Shochu Handbook is available on Amazon. <laughs> and I wrote The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, which was published in 2019. And that's available at fine bookstores nationwide and uh, Amazon as well. And then Christopher and I actually have a podcast, the Japan Distilled Podcast, which is all things Japanese spirits, uh, episodes every two weeks. Mm -hmm. And we're just starting our second season. So uh, you can follow me on social media. This is Stephen at, at Japan Distilled on both uh, Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. And Christopher, how about you? Homekakuspirits.com is the home of our business online. And there's a way for people to go to a product page click the find a retailer and then using GPS location, it'll, it'll tell you which places are closest to your, to where you are or whichever zip code you plug in on the internet. I'm easy to find on Instagram at Christopher Pellegrini and on Twitter, I'm at Chris Pellegrini 
and relatively active. So if you have any questions or comments or just you know want to uh, start a conversation, I'm happy to engage. So excellent. Uh, well, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, this was a terrific education on uh, all these amazing products, and I hope we can bring you back again to sort of go deeper on some of the stories and uh, of the distilleries and of some of the product you guys carry. That'd be great. Thank you so much for having us. Well, that was a really good way to kick off the new year. Um, I'm so grateful uh, for having Kathy Hollinger on the show and really giving us a 411 on what's happening out there. I really do advise everybody to be safe. It is spreading like wildfire, even if you're vaccinated and boosted, um, but hopefully it doesn't hit you too hard. Uh, but wear your mask, please, and be kind to the servers. And, and remember, like there are staff shortages left, right, and sideways. So be safe out there. Um, and I'm excited to have talked to Christopher Pellegrini and Stephen Lyman of Hong Kanku Spirits. I mean, I'm going to be drinking more sushi as we get into the new year. It just sounds like um, it's so interesting and has such a rich history. Um, so definitely check them out. Follow them on Instagram and social media to find out more. And follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Of course, you should go to the list, areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that covers everything going on in the D.C. metro areas, food, wine, and hospitality scene. Uh, and don't forget to listen to Foodie and the Beast every Sunday on 1500. Or of course, you can go back to the list or you want it.com and click on it there. So I thank you so much for joining me on the first industry night of 2022. I'm here on Real Fun DC every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Be safe out there. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.